Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Professional failure can be devastating. Many of us derive a significant amount of our self-esteem from what we do for a living. When your identity is wrapped up in your job and something bad happens, it's only natural to be buffeted by doubt. But sometimes, failure is a gift. Sometimes it opens the door to your future. Take the case of this week's guest. You know Dick Vitale as the colorful college basketball analyst for ESPN. But in 1979, Vitale was just another failed NBA head coach. Just another middle-aged guy who suddenly felt like a loser because he had lost his job. Until one fateful telephone call opened the door to his future. Join me for a revealing conversation with this American original who needed to be humbled before he could become a television legend. Dick, thanks for joining us today. You had an accident when you were in kindergarten that left a a pretty big mark on your life. What happened? Well, you know, actually it was before kindergarten. I think it was like three, four years old. Uh, I had an accident, I had an eye injury, and I've lost my vision in my left eye, and I've been blind in the left eye ever since, and uh, you know what? You can go on far. I just told a youngster recently uh, who had lost their eye that you can live, do anything anybody else basically does, and in my case, you know, because I'm so young, I don't know what it is to have really two good eyes, but I've been able to do anything, you know, I drive, I been able to play sports. I've been able to obviously work in television. So it's it's turned out pretty good. What are your memories of, of that injury? It must have been really traumatic. Yeah, you know, the biggest traumatic uh, situation I ever faced was, uh, number one, when I started, I, you know, I was a sports fanatic. Man, I've been a sports fanatic all my life. I eat, sleep, and drink the sports pages and can't wait to find out the latest results. And suddenly got blessed later in life with Sports Center giving us 
a synopsis as to what's happening. But uh, when I was a kid, my oh God, 11, 12 years old, pitching the Little League, it really hit me big time because not only did I lose my eye, I ended up having a, a, a muscle problem with the eye. And, and with that, my eye used to just drift on me. I never... I never was able to basically look you straight in the eye and you look at me. If I looked at you, you'd be turning your head left or right, wondering who I'm looking at. And it used to really frustrate me big time. And when I pitched in a little league and I used to throw the ball hard, I mean, I had some great memories of, you know, pitching shutouts and I always had a perfect game one time. And, and it was documented. I got an article, uh, you know, a while back from somebody that I guess saved the article and sent it to me. I showed my grandkids. I said, look at this. I was one out away from a perfect game. But anyway, while I was pitching, I mean, I couldn't believe some of the things that were yelled at me because my eye would drift. Hey, does that kid know where he's throwing? Look, look at his eye. He can't see where he's throwing the ball. And, and it used to be like a dagger knife going through me. I mean, it hurt so much. I can't tell you. I will tell you this. I would go to my room after the games, sit in my room, look in the mirror, look at my eye, and cry my eyes out. And my mom, God bless, I, I came from such a great family. My mother and father were, were uneducated, fifth grade education, but had a doctor to love. I tell this to people all the time. And she would come in that room and she would say to me, what's going on, Richie? It's never dick, Rich. I said, people are teasing me about my eye and I can't stand it. My eye, look at it, goes all over the place. And she would be so great and telling me, hey, come on, don't let those people get the best of you. But I look back now with all the bullying. I just read a story just today. It just crushed me. A kid being bullied so much, lays on a railroad tracks and gets killed in front of his classmates because he was being bullied. My, my point is, I was being bullied then, but I didn't realize it was bullying. It was all, you know, it's part of life. You take it and you deal with it and you go on. But I was really, in essence, being bullied by parents yelling for their team behind their team's bench and all and just just ridiculous and I, i've tried to advocate now to so many you know treat people of all people everybody's different treat them with some respect and love so that's when the eye was a problem but ultimately uh everything got solved and, and and fortunately for me i got a lucky break and got my eyes straightened out and things were okay in the end did that problem actually make you stronger by toughening you up you know, that's a great point. You know, I, some people say maybe that was the scenario that got me to be uh, so enthusiastic and energetic, make up for all that. I don't know. I, uh, I can't verify that, but I've been always this kind of guy. In fact, in my school yearbook, which I looked at before I did an interview about, oh God, I don't know, six months, a year ago. And in my yearbook in high school, underneath my picture, it says, everybody's buddy. I, I you know, I'd, I've always been that kind of guy. I like people. I love being around people. I love being with people. In fact, whenever I go to a restaurant, so many times people will come up to me and say, don't you get tired of these people coming up bothering you while you're eating and signing autographs and all that? And I said, come on, I don't get bothered at all. If they don't recognize me, I'll put a sign back there and say, please, please, I'm the TV. Ask me for a picture and autograph. So, you know, I, I love people, but yeah, it, it, it took a hold on me. There's no question. And the reason it got solved, uh, my wife, uh, Lorraine, married now 48 years, but she went to the eye doctor with my daughters to get an eye checkup when they were young kids. Oh my God, this is 30 years ago at least. And when she came home, she said, the doctor asked her, said, are you related in any way to Dick Vitale who's on TV? And she said, yeah, that's my husband. He said, well, look, I wanted to mention this. I, I watch him on TV and I see his eye drifts on him. Has he ever thought about surgery? 
And my wife said, well, his mother took him to all kinds of doctors and they told him whatever he does now, just leave the eye as it is. Uh, you never know, there might be a change. Something happens that happens in terms of research and you never know, you can get vision back in that eye. And so I'm not talking about vision in the eyes, I'm talking about correcting it cosmetically. And he said, I'd like to see him. Because I would do that for him, even though I'm a pediatric uh, ophthalmologist, I don't deal with adults, but I would make the exception because I'm a big basketball fan and I followed him when he coached here in college and the pros, the whole bit. So she begged me to go and I just delayed and delayed and finally I went. And he told me, he said, he can help me correct my eye. And it was ironic what happened to me, and I've documented it in my books uh, uh, out there that I've had over the last few years. And what what happened to me is one night I'm on ESPN, and we're in the studio. And anytime you come out of the studio, you walk out, you you, know, you say something, a comment or two to the uh, receptionist. And I made a comment about the fact of a how we get anybody screaming and yelling about uh, they don't like what we said. And that's always a good sign. I mean, you really reach your people and, and, and so forth. But the bottom line is she says, yeah. This one guy keeps calling and he's going nuts. And she says, it really aggravates me because he's nasty. I said, what is he nasty about? She said, oh, don't, don't get insulted, but he keeps saying about he wants to get you off TV because you're, he can't stand looking at, oh my God, that was like, again, that just hit me like I was back in the little league, back in the room crying with my mother. I went home and I told my wife, I'm done. And when I got inducted, into the Sportscasters Hall of Fame, and all the ESPN key people were there, and the one fellow at that time who was my immediate boss, the vice president in charge of remotes, Steve Anderson, was there. And Steve was the only guy that knew that I had called him up when I got home that day from that toll section and heard about that. I called Steve up, and I said, Steve, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going back coaching in college. Uh, I'm, I'm not made for TV. And he said, what are you talking about? And I told him the situation with the eye, and he said, look, we didn't hire you because, you know, you're Tom Cruise or whatever. We hired you because you're Dick Vitale. You know basketball and you're enthusiastic and don't let that guy get the best of you. But it bothered me. And it bothered me every time I got on TV. It stopped bothering me thinking about people looking at me like that. So anyway, we finally went to see that doctor. I went back again and I said, if we do surgery, let's, how long the woman told me he went, went on. And then he finally said to me, I have to tell you this. Before we do surgery, you have to sign these papers. You have to understand that, number one, I have to operate on your good eye to solve the problem with your bad eye. I have to pull the muscle over. And there's always a chance, a chance that you could lose vision. But I want you to know, I want you to trust me. I'm the best at what I do. Trust me. I have never lost vision in a patient. Oh, my God, that put a new twist on it when I left this office. I said, Oh my God, I can't take a chance. The only eye I see out of, if you ever lose vision or not, I'm done. So I tossed and turned. And finally, I just said, you know what? He speaks so confidently. He speaks with such optimism. I'm going to do it. And I did it. And it was like a change. I went from the thick glasses to, a, I wear one contact at the time. Now I don't wear any contacts. I just had about a year ago, cataract surgery, with the implant of a lens and I don't wear anything anymore, but bottom line is it changed me. It changed me quite a bit mentally, physically, emotionally, every other way. So what's the lesson for people out there, kids especially, who might feel inadequate for whatever reason in the eyes of their peers? What do you say to a kid who's being teased because he's different? 
Well, the lesson's very simply be strong mentally, uh, have a support team around you, and just don't let those people get the best of you and, and try to do what you can in life. I know it's very difficult to say that people want to be in ridicule. I think the message should be loud and clear to those out there that do things of that nature that really What's their value as a person? What are, where are they going in life? Well, I mean, anybody does that to someone to hurt somebody, go out of your way to help somebody. Go out of your way to see a lady carrying a lot of bags coming out of a restaurant, an older woman. Why not walk over and give a helping hand? It's a great feeling, a great feeling being nice to people, extending a hand with love in your heart. That, to me, is worth way more than making a fool out of yourself and trying to ridicule someone. Was your determination to be everybody's buddy, was that the insecurity trying to find another outlet? I'm going to tell you one thing. You're pretty good at what you do. So I, I probably was an insecurity. I think we all have insecurity. I just love insecurities. I was 80 years old. I, I mean, I, I really believe that. I, I think none of us are always, you know, we like to play that cool macho role that we're, oh, everything is cool. But now, indeed, many of us have insecurity. I mean, I go on to a telecast right now. You're always worried about how good you are and where you're good. Did you really uh, analyze the game the way you thought it should be? Did you really give enough attention? Were you enough critical about certain areas? I think we all live in a world of insecurity. I think that's a great analysis you made there because I think there's no doubt that I I tried to cover that up somehow. What was it about sports growing up in New Jersey that captured your imagination? Boy, that's great. You know, I think one of the things that got me going is I grew up in a big, big family, a blue-collar family. My mother had nine brothers and sisters combined, and my my father had nine. So there's 18 aunts and uncles. By the way, every one of them, after the last year or so, all 18 are gone, and I miss them so much. They taught me so much about life. They taught me about love. They taught me about adversity, taught me about respect for family. Everything we did was family, family, family. The holidays were unbelievable. My mother would start cooking at seven in the morning and all day and all night. My aunts would come over, my uncles, my cousins. And it was just a great, great time. But what I did is during that time, being a young kid, my uncles were all baseball fanatics. I mean, well, sports fan, but baseball in particular. And they would take me as a young age, five years old, go to Yankee Stadium. I saw Joe DiMaggio. I'll never, never forget that, walking into the stadium, even though sitting way back further. And then my Uncle Tom, I don't know how he ever did it, but my Uncle Tom would always get the greatest seats. And he would come and say, Richie, we never did. Come on, Richie, we're going to go see the we're going to see the Dodgers. And the, and the, I'll never forget, we're going to go see the Dodgers and the Giants play. It's when it was New, New York Giants, when they were in New York. New York played at the Polo Grounds. And we're going to go to Ebbets Field. Man, I went to Ebbets Field. We're sitting by the dugout. And there's Duke Snyder and Roy Campanella. And there's all Jackie Robinson. Oh, my God. I couldn't believe it. And that's what got me going. Every day I'd come home and read Dick Young's column in the Daily News. His, he had a little notes column that was unbelievable. And I just became a fanatic. And then carried over to basketball, football season, the three uh, traditional sports. And I just ate, slept. And my mother knew always where to get me. She'd be screaming out my father about time for dinner, you know, those days. And I'd be out there on the playground chasing my dreams, thinking I could be Bob Cousy. Uh, I got in the Hall of Fame and Bob Cousy sitting in the crowd. And I thought I was the dream of being like you, Bob. Number 14, go between my legs, around my back. And the reality set in. I had no shot, no chance. 
you know, the, the, the family, I, we used to argue. I got a new book out now. My latest book is called My Mount Rushmore's of College Basketball, Best uh, best Coaches, Best Players, the four of them in, four, in different categories, the four best. And the book, for me, is, is special because every dollar that I would make from the book is going for kids battling cancer through the V Foundation. If people want an autographed copy, I personally autograph them. They just go to Dick Vitale online.com. But the reason I mentioned the book here specifically is the book became a reality and an idea because one day I'm sitting around and it dreamt of my early days as a kid. We would sit and fight and argue after church. My mother would have all the donuts out and the coffee and the juice and my uncles would come over and the argument would begin. Oh man, the best center fielder in baseball is the Mick, number seven, Mantle. And then my other uncle would scream, are you kidding me? He doesn't get the publicity, but number four, Duke, he's the best man, Snyder. And then I would jump in and say, are you kidding? Come on, man, they can't compare to number 24, the CIA kid, Willie Mays. Are you serious? Run, hit with power, flare, hit. Oh man, Willie. And then my father, in his own little way, my dad would jump up and say, Oh, this Italian, well, you guys don't know what you're talking about. There's only one guy in the Hall of Fame who never had to make a great catch because he was always waiting for the ball. The Yankee Clipper, Joe DiMaggio. Well, you'd figure that a Paisan would go for his boy DiMaggio. But those, those are great arguments. Those are great times. And that's why I came up with the idea of the book because you know, people don't agree with me with my four best coaches and my four best players. And I respect that. And I, I think that's great that people are like that. But I, I, th- those were special days. And that's what got my fire going about the world of sports. And so you read Dick Young when you came home. Who did you like to listen to on the radio? Oh, my God. Well, you know, radio or TV was in those days. See, I think <laughs> I don't want to be critical of peers because I know how hard the job is. and I know how tough it is. I know all the work that's involved in prep- preparing. But I don't know about you. I-, I think we live in a day and age when I watch a football game or a baseball game or a basketball game or you name the sporting event <clears throat> and I think there's such over-analysis that it just drives me nuts. I mean, I watched a baseball game just the other night. I'm watching a game. Every pitch being dissected, every move off first base. I want to hear the stories. In those days, you listen to Mel Allen, Red Barber. Those guys were unbelievable. And later on, Phil Rizzuto. Come on, White. I got to beat the traffic. I'm leaving in the eighth inning. I just sit there hysterically. You can't believe a guy saying that. But the, the bottom line is, they told stories about the players. I, I've tried to in TV, um, and I just received, and I don't know why, but I did receive the highest honor you can get in broadcasting, the Emmy Award for the Lifetime Achievement Award. It's given out annually, and I joined the ranks of guys. I sit in awe and pinch myself to think my name is there with, you know, Vince Scully and Keith Jackson and uh, Howard Cosell and John Madden, and the list is unreal. But as I told the people that night when I received that award, I think when I look back, my I think it had, when I got hired at ESPN by Scotty Connell, Scotty was a giant in the world of production. Giant came from NBC. And after I did my very first game, he told me something that stayed with me forever, stays with me till this day. He said to me, Dick, there's three things you have we can't teach. Number one, your enthusiasm. Two, your candidness. And three, your knowledge of the game. But you have no clue, none, 
how to get in, out, and all. And if you listen to me and you follow me, you're going to make a hell of a career out of this. And then he told me something that I use all the time. He said, remember when you're doing a game that you're in this business to educate and to entertain. It's an educated entertainment. People watch TV. They want to be entertained. They don't want to sit there being bored and hear about the stitches on the ball and you're taking the left foot off at first base and you want to extend it six inches. Come on now, man. I, I, I think what happens, a lot of guys, they maybe come out of a uniform or they come out of getting fired and coaching like I did, and you want to impress your peers and you want to impress all your buddies and maybe you're showcasing yourself you think to get a job in coaching or in management what was your ambition as a young boy obviously you wanted to be bob cousy but what was your real aspiration at that point that's that's another great question nobody's ever asked me that you know really and and, and it's unbelievable my son-in-law right now I played quarterback at Notre Dame and got injured. I didn't play his last two years. He was 96. He, in the Orange Bowl, he did really well, threw like three touchdown passes against, against Florida State team. Then had a little neck problem and couldn't play. But the bottom line is today, he took that Notre Dame education, got his law degree. Today, he sits as a, uh, I don't know what the title is, U.S. or whatever it is, circuit court judge, one of the youngest in the state of Florida near where I live. And Thomas has been a prosecutor as well prior. Well, I always tell him when I was a kid, a lot of people don't know this. I would, I'm not proud of this to say it, but I would cut school sometime. And what I would do, I would go to the courthouse. I would go to the courthouse and I used to follow certain guys in terms of lawyers with big reputations. Years ago, a guy by the name stands on my name, my mind right now, Joey Gordielli and the, the prosecutor Guy Galisi, who I ended up teaching with his daughter. And I was in awe when she told me her father was Guy Galisi. He was a, a, a legend back there as a prosecutor in Bergen County, New Jersey. And I would sit there and get mesmerized. And my goal was I wanted to someday. Be a prosecutor, man. Be a prosecutor. Stand in that courtroom and, and try to convince that jury, you know. And then really, I was not really a guy cut out for academics. I was always sports, sports, and sports. And I'll never forget one time, I'm in my class with this true story. They honored me in Jersey about, oh, God, about three, four years ago. And they gave me this big award. And a lot of former my students, former kids I coached in high school came to the event. Now, when he came there, we talked about some of the memories. And one memory was this, uh, former guys I went to school with. I'm sitting in the back of the room, sitting in the back of the room, one of the classes, and I don't know, I'm, there's some kind of business class. And I'm sitting back there, and I'm reading, reading Dick Young's column. I got it stuck there. I'm not listening to the teacher at all. And she comes running back to the room, Miss Lucy Zonker. I'll never forget her name. Miss Lucy Zonker was a young teacher. She comes running back there and she grabs the thing out of my hands. I'm trying to shove it down my pants. She grabs it and she says, Look at this. All you do all day long is this sports nonsense. Readers, where's that going to take you? And I, I, my line at the event was, remember Lucy yelling at me, where's it going to take you? Lucy, you should see my house I live in now and where I go, Lucy, in the sports world. But I don't advocate that for anyone. I was lucky enough. My daughters didn't follow my pattern. They both went to Notre Dame. They both uh, got their master's. Uh, and, and it just... 
you know, but those are the days they were so special, special days for me growing up. I, I, I will never forget them. I treasure them and they've gone too fast, man. I can't believe I'm 80 years old. Uh, Dan Schumann, my buddy working at ESPN called me up about a week ago and he calls me up and he says, man, I can't believe you're 80. No way. He said, a lot of guys 30 wish they could have your energy and your enthusiasm. I said, well, I don't feel 80. I played tennis. I played singles just yesterday. Today I got rained out. But uh, uh, the bottom line is reality sets in when I look in the mirror, then I know I'm 80. What did you learn from your mom and dad about working hard and where that hard work would take you? I learned about love, man. I learned about. I learned more at my dinner table than any class I ever took. I learned about family. I learned about tough times. I learned about watch my father come home on Fridays. He'd come home and put X number of dollars on the table for my mother to use for food. X number of dollars for the insurance man. And we we lived a good. We had a nice little home. We lived a, a good life filled with so much love. My aunt lived next door to us. The house was probably connected. My grandmother was next door, and it was just family, family, family. And I learned so much about caring about one another and giving a damn and loving one another. Blue, they were blue collar in every way. They were what our nation was is, is made of. And, and the one thing that they were, that we just seem to be missing now in our nation is love. There's not enough love, man. There's too much hate, too much hate. Every time I pick up papers, I hear guys talk, politicians, whether you're Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, it's all this hate about one another. Where is the love? And it's really affected so many people out there and the way they think. They listen to these guys and they follow their patterns and it's not right. It's not good for our nation. And I didn't grow up in that. I grew up with love, man. I grew up with so much love in my family. It was unreal. What does the American dream mean to you? Well, the American dream, you look at me, I guess the definition is very simply. Here's a guy, one-eyed. He's not the uh, not the, the most handsome guy in the world. And here it is. I go on and make a heck of a living doing something I love because all my life, I've always tried to have passion and pride. My mother used to always tell me there's two things my mother and father taught me as a kid. I would hear these things often, often. I try to share them. I do loads of motivational speaking. I've been with the Washington Speakers Bureau now for over three decades. And I got some speeches coming up. I got to go out for them, the corporate events and the one thing I'll share there is what I grew up as a kid is I heard two things. My mom would say to me, never, ever believe in can't. And she used that with me because one day I was chasing a dream like we all like to dream. We won back-to-back state championships as a high school coach back in East Rutherford, New Jersey. I was probably, oh, I don't know, 28, 29 years of age. And you want to go to the next level. My buddy used to always, Larry Sirigano, who passed away, used to use a say it all the time. He'd say, it was never Dick, it was Richie. Richie, you're a boy, a ball, a dream. A boy, a ball, a dream. Man, did that really epitomize me and my life. The boy, a ball, a dream. Well, I was getting so many rejections. I was writing letters to every school you can imagine that was a smaller level school. I wasn't writing to Kentucky or Duke or Carolina. Smaller schools asking, can I be a graduate assistant? Could I be whatever, a third assistant? Just anything to get in the door on a collegiate level. And I got so many rejections, man. My buddy Howard Garfinkel, who's like really a guy great in basketball, well-respected in basketball, 
five-star basketball camp. He used to always use a saying and say, get more rejections than the dean of Harvard gives out. And I think that that really applied to me. So I had all these rejections all over. And one day I came home really depressed. And as only mothers could do, they could, they could really feel that from their children. And she said to me, gee, I don't see that spirit. She'd always call it spirit. And that excitement out of you, Richie, you look down. I said, Mom, my buddies are all right. They're all telling me, man, you're wasting your time. You can't be a college coach. You never played the game. You never were a big name. You're going to be here all your life. I was teaching sixth and seventh grade. You're teaching sixth, seventh grade, coaching in high school, and there's nothing wrong with it. I'd say, I loved it. I loved it. I, I respect those teachers that do that. I didn't like the paycheck, but I loved doing that. And, and she sat me on a couch. I'll never forget this. One of those moments she said, she said, Richie, Richie, listen to me. Richie, you got something they can't hold back. You got so much spirit and excitement about you, so much enthusiasm, she used to say all the time. And I don't see that, and I don't let your friends take that away from you. Don't believe in that word, can't. I don't want you to ever believe in can't. You could do what you want. She told me that when I had one eye. Don't let one eye stop you. You could be what you want. The people have it worse than you. Oh, she was phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal. And then at my dinner table, my father would go to work punctuality. I learned to, he'd go to work, supposed to start seven in the morning. He'd be there at six 30. And I'd say, why are you go so early? I mean, it's 15 minutes away from the house. You go so early. So when I got patient, Richie, you got to be ready to work. And did he work? Oh my God, did he work? Cause he took me there after my junior year to show me, to try to motivate me to go to college. But you don't want to do what I do. Richie's we're driving to work. And I, my job was at the heat of the factory that he worked in the sweatshop to get the coats. I would get the coats from the seamstress that would sew them and I would run them over to him and he would press them. And the more coats he pressed, he got paid by the called piecework by every coat. That's how he got paid, man. He was like sweat pouring down t-shirt just loaded. And we'd go back home at five o'clock and say, Richie, you don't want to do this. Go to college, Richie, go to college. I, don't, I wasn't thinking about college. None of my cousins were thinking college. We're thinking about basically, you know, get a car, new car, three year payment, go get a job somewhere. And but I'm watching that. And he used to always say to me, "Don't waste. You got a brain. Go to college." And I'm lucky they pushed me, man. I'm lucky they did. And it, it just I owe them so much. And then my father at the dinner table, I would hear from my mom and dad probably ten. My sister and I would talk. She came out for my brother came out for the event when I got the Emmy Award, and we were talking as just sitting around after and, and just talking about memories and how my mom. Getting me choked up here now, man. My mom would say, uh, and my dad, Richie, be good to people and people will be good to you. I must have heard that 10 to 15 times a day. Be good to people. Man, people have been so good to me. I mean, ESPN, you got my family, obviously, my wife, my daughters, my sons-in-laws, my five beautiful grandkids. I mean, they mean everything to me. People that know me at ESPN, I'll tell you, my wife comes to me on almost every trip. Uh, we've been a family so close for years. It's nothing like it. And ESPN is my second family for 40 years. I'm proud to say I'll go to my grave knowing I did the very first game in the history of ESPN on December 5, 1979. And they, the friendships that I've developed 
when I got the Lifetime Achievement Award to see guys that I used to work with there, Freddie Goodelli, now the executive producer for Sunday Night Football on NBC, Drew Esikoff, all the guys that worked with me at ESPN have moved up the ladder to see some of them become you know, vice presidents and just climbing uh, professionally makes me feel so good. And they've been so good to me, these people, so good to me. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. Dick, your life demonstrates so much, including the fact that one thing so often leads to another, and you can't always predict what's going to happen around the corner to change your life. You got your first big break as an assistant at Rutgers. How did that happen? Yeah, it happened because of Howard Garfinkel. Howard Garfinkel had heard me speak at a high school banquet. We had won our 29th in a row in state champs. And he was the guru in terms of uh, rating players, his summer, his five-star camp. And when I got done, he came over to me and said, you belong in college. I started laughing. I said, that's great, man, that you say that. But I got more rejections. Somebody get you a job. And I said, you're going to get me a job. He said, yep. And one thing with Howard, he was wired to every head coach because they all wanted to know him. His five-star camp was, I mean, you named the player and they were there from Michael Jordan right down as high school kids. So anyway, what happened was he calls me up one day and he says, I got an interview set for you. So I wasn't even getting interviews. So I got an interview set for you at Rutgers University, State University. He said, but I got to tell you this. He's already interviewed six people and he already has said he's getting ready to hire within like 72 hours. If you're willing to go there and get the experience of being interviewed, which will help you later on, I think you should do it. I said, well, I'll do whatever you say, Mr. Garfinkel. What do you want me to do, Super Garf? So I go down there, and I get interviewed. And the interview goes on and on. And finally, the head coach was Dick Lloyd. And Dick finally says to me after the interview, he says, are you in a hurry? I said, no, not really. He said, I'd like you to come and meet my wife and my family at my home before you head back to North Jersey. That was Central Jersey. I was living in North Jersey. So I said, sure. So I went over it. Now my mind is racing. I'm saying, why would he want me to meet his family? He's getting ready to hire a guy, Garf said. And But I didn't know this. Garf told him, I found this out later. Garfinkel told him, that if you interview him, you're going to hire him. I'm telling you that now. He started laughing. Dick said, come on now. So I'm telling you, you're going to hire him. So what happened was, the bottom line, is I get home and I tell my wife, I said, man, I feel great. It was great, great getting interviewed. And I think the guy liked me. I know he's not going to hire me, but I, he liked me. I could tell. And I felt so good. And about 10 minutes later, the phone rings. I pick up the phone and he says to me, hey, I want to make sure you got home okay. And they said, sure. I said, well, I had a great time. So well, thanks. He said, look, I'm not going to waste time. He said, Garfinkel was right. I didn't know if you know what he's talking about. What do you mean he's right? He told me if I interview you, I'm going to hire you. Well, I'm going to hire you right now. Oh, my God. I'll tell you one thing. You talk about tears flowing. We go out, and I said to my wife, we're going to share tonight what my mom and dad used to always do on Friday night. We'd go to a place called Barcelona. Somebody told me it still exists in Garfield, New Jersey, pizza place. And we'd go there as a family, and that was our big night out, Friday night for pizza at Barcelona. So I said to my wife, we're going to do that. So we go there, and there's only a wife could do. She says to me, 
yeah, that's great. You're going to coach in college now, but what are you going to get paid? I said, you know what? I have no idea. I said, <laughs> I never even asked them. I said, but I know it's got to be more than what I'm making. I was making at the time 12th now a year with summer, with camps, with teaching, coaching, master's degree. I mean, this is 1970. And I said, bottom line is it's got to be at least 25000 It's college. So I said, I got to call them up. And there's no cell phones or random phone booth. And I called them up and I said, Dick, I never asked you. I said, well, what am I getting paid? Not that it's going to matter. So what are you making? So I'm making 12000 He said, that's fantastic. You're only going to take a $1,000 cut to eleven. <laughs> I went back and told my wife about pride. And I, I used this. every story you're hearing me here. If you go to my speech and people want to hear them, um, during my Hall of Fame induction ceremony, I used that story because Howard Garfinkel and Dick Lloyd were present that night when I got inducted in the Hall of Fame. And they were hysterical uh, listening to me tell that because it's so true. By watching him, what did you learn about being a head coach? Well, I learned so much. He was so organized. His, uh, till his day, I learned more from Dick Lloyd than anything I ever did in terms of organization, arranging the the. the even little things like stationary, calling cards, how to respect people, how to treat people, how to be punctual, how to, I mean, he did everything so unbelievable professional. And he learned it from a great coach who he played under and coached under, and that was uh, Bill Foster. And Bill Foster passed it on to him. And when I used to see Bill Foster, I'd say, Bill, boy, I learned so much from you. You don't even know it because Dick would pass that on. And I took that with me in my everyday life, and I use it till this day. I mean, if I meet somebody, I immediately send a little note out to them, things I learned then in recruiting. And, and we went on and had an incredible recruiting class. People said about Kent, and I wouldn't believe it. We ended up recruiting one of the great classes in the history of Rutgers University, or maybe even the East, Phil Sellers and Mike Dabney. They went on to the Final Four. They were 32-0 uh, Rutgers. Uh, Final Four was named the schools. I'll name them for Indiana. Undefeated, Bob Knight, last unbeaten team, 1976. UCLA, Michigan, and Rutgers. Doesn't seem right. You mentioned those three, and Rutgers was there with all the kids we basically recruited in Sellers and Dabney, who were the cornerstones and the real stars of that team. By that time, you were at Detroit University. You got in your first head coaching job. How did that happen? Well, that's another hour story, but you know, I, I got the job at Detroit. Uh, I was good friends with Willis Reed at the Knickerbockers. When I said good friends, I got to know Willis well. Well, we put a game on together to help raise money in the summer for a youngster that suffered a major accident. Sammy Davis's name was. And one day I was in the Nick locker room and walking by was Dave DeBusher. I had never met Dave DeBusher, but I always loved his work ethic, his toughness. He was a team player. So as he's walking by with a towel around him, I said, well, let's introduce me to Dave DeBusher. So he brought Dave over, and Dave, very casual, very cordial, rather, and it's the casual conversation, uh, you know, the usual, what do you do? And uh, right now, then Willis says, well, right now he's looking for a job coaching because the head coach, Dick Lloyd, had resigned and didn't look like I was going to get the head coaching job. Uh, the AD made that very basically clear. So I was really, you know, didn't know where I'm going. So he said, just pops up and he says, hey, why don't you apply in my alma mater? You're looking for a head coach. So Willis Reed, without batting an eye, says to him, forget about him. Why don't you call up for him, Dave? You're a legend down here. He said, that could be great with those kids in Detroit. He's great communicants. He goes on and on, you know, praising me. And 
I, I forgot about it, to be honest with you. It was just casual conversation. Two weeks later, I get a phone call from Detroit to come out for an interview. I'm saying, how the hell did I get this interview? It had to be the busher. So I go there, I get the interview, and I get hired. And I can't believe this. When we did an event, we had an event, and we brought the busher back, and Spencer Haywood was not great there. And David, I'd say to him, boy, thanks so much, man. He'd say to me, I didn't do anything. He would never, he would never admit to me, but he had to, because they didn't know me from Adam. How would they know who I am? And in Detroit, I'd never been here in my life. So I got to believe that he played that key role in making that happen. And you said earlier, you never know from day to day what could change your life. The same happened to me in a world of television. You had a really good run at Detroit, and your last year, you beat Marquette, the eventual national champion in '77. And you get the attention of the Pistons, your dream job, coaching in the NBA, right? Well, you know, think about this. 1970, I'm in a sixth grade teaching. I get a college assistant job. Then I go to a college head coaching job. I was, a lot of people don't know this. I was the youngest athletic director and head coach in the country because at Detroit, we were having success, as you mentioned, and they made me the AD as well because they thought that would be a great way of keeping me from leaving or, or going elsewhere. And then all of a sudden, I get the Pistons job. I ran to it, obviously. I mean, in seven years, I go from the sixth grade to the NBA. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's like, I can't believe this. I can't believe it. And it was the biggest mistake I made because really, I, I just couldn't handle losing. And our owner was phenomenal. Bill Davidson was as good as a guy, as an owner, as you can have. He would say to me over and over again, you're your biggest enemy, Dick. We know it's going to take us five years. Why you, you want to get it over done today? I was never used to losing. I went to high school, took a program over. It was a football school. We won state championships. I go to Rutgers. We recruit a great class. It was on to the final four of that class. I go to Detroit. We get them in the NCAA tournament. First time ever. So I'm, success, success, success. Now I'm losing more games in a week than I'm losing in a year. And I, I, I just couldn't deal with it. And I was really bad. Bad to be around. Uh, I probably would have been dead by 50 if I stayed in coaching. I just couldn't handle it. And I kept saying to him, we can't win. I could coach till I'm blue in the face. I could coach and coach and coach. We're not beating Dr. J and Moses Malone. We're not beating Kareem and those people. We're not beating. And he didn't want to hear that after a while. And finally, my wife used to always tell me, you can't keep telling the owner. I said, Mom, this is brutal. I can't take this lose. And I, I can't wait five years. So he finally did fired me on November 8, 1979. And now I look back, you know, it was ironic. He and I got inducted into the Hall of Fame the same year. And I woke, I hadn't seen him for years. I hadn't seen him since he fired me back in, uh, well, I was 79, I guess. Yeah, 79. So I saw him at the Hall of Fame. We got in 2008. And I walked over to him and I said, I want to thank you, Mr. Davidson. They did the best thing for me by firing me. But I also want to tell you, I'm so sorry I let you down. I never did what, in my heart, I wanted to do. I wanted so badly to be a success for you and for the program and for myself as well, obviously. But I said, I didn't do it. And I'm, that's one of the emptinesses on my, my resume that I feel bad about. But I still thank you for giving me the chance. So at least I got a chance to talk to him. We hugged and that was it. Bill Rasmussen gets fired in the front office of the Whalers and goes on to start a little channel called ESPN. You get fired as the head coach of the Pistons, and it's the best thing that could have happened 
to both of you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you have those dark moments and they turn to be shining. You know, you got two choices. You got two, I, I was so depressed when I got fired. I mean, I have to admit this to you. I was sitting home and I've told people this time and time again. I was sitting home and I was watching Luke and Laura on General Hospital. And my wife really, when they called me up, Scotty Connors, to do the very first game, I said, I have no interest at all. I don't know TV. And first of all, I said, you said, who are you with? And he said, ESPN. I said, ESPN? That sounds like a disease. What is ESPN? And uh, wow, to be a little spoken entire, how big ESPN has become, makes me feel so proud. What do you remember about that first game? Well, what I remember is I had no clue whatsoever about production meetings. I had no clue. We had no cell phones in those days. So I'm in Chicago. I've been in the house, like, just feeling sorry for myself since I got fired back in, uh, you know, when I got fired there in November. And this is like uh, December. I mean, this is right around the corner. There I am doing a game. And, and, and I'm just, you know, going out for real. It's the first time in terms of going out and being with people. So I was walking around in Chicago. I hadn't been in Chicago in my life, basically, very few times. And walking around, having lunch. Just, and finally, I had to go to the game, man. And I walk into the game like about, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes to an hour before the game. And producer comes running over and says, we've been trying to call you all day at the hotel. We do, this is our first game. We, what, I said, well, excuse me. I said, uh, we got an hour to go. <laughs> I'm going to talk basketball. What, what am I going to do? I mean, I had no idea. People talking in your ear, you know, hey, we're going to go to commercial. I'm going out. Oh, really? Okay. No, don't talk. I think you're on the air. I was unbelievable. I had so much fun, though. And then they, Scotty called me up. I told you what he said about the three things. And then he said to me, uh, we're going to assign to you. We think they've got a lot of potential. And we're going to assign to you Jim Simpson, a Hall of Fame announcer, who's going to really work with you. And Jim was so good to me. I owe so much to Jim Simpson on remotes. And I owe so much to Bob Lee, who was very young at the time. And he had started at the same time I did. Bob Lee in the studio was just an incredible teacher for me and many of the things and how to get in and out. Was there a moment in that first season when you realized, one, I might be pretty good at this, and two, I might not go back to coaching? Well, no, it didn't hit me there until my probably 1983. I'd have to say three and a half years. Uh, at that time, you know, I enjoyed what I was doing, but down deep, my blood was still wanting to get on that sideline in college. I felt that college, I could control myself. I could go out and recruit kids. You know, in the NBA, you're caught up. There's not much you can do, man. You get the contracts, you got the, uh, you know, free agencies, very, you know, it's not easy to go get players and change your lineup as easy as you like, as it is in college. So I wanted to go back to college, but then in 1983, Scotty kept always saying to me, man, you're going to make a hell of a living doing this, Dick. Don't think about college. In 83, I go to my first Final Four for ESPN. We had studio shows because CBS had the games. And I'm there, and people are asking for autographs and pictures. And I'm going, like, I can't believe this. And finally, I told it to Scotty. He said, Dick, I told you, you have something that is called in a business, you connect. Whether they agree with you or disagree, people are going to the water cooler after you've been on and saying, did you hear what I don't agree with them, man. I disagree with him. Bottom line is you connect. He says, you connect. Don't let go of this as a living. And I start really, all of a sudden, from that moment on, I'm starting to get offers to commercials and books and things start going. And it got to a point, 
I couldn't ever think of it. And it was the best thing I ever did because really, as I said, and I mean this sincerely, the way I handled losing, I would not be talking to you today. There's no way because I couldn't live. This has given me a more balanced life. You know, when you're off season, you're free to do what you want. You go do what you have to. And I just, uh, I love it. I love it. How much of your delivery is planned and how much is spontaneous? It's spontaneous. It's got to be like 90-some percent. You know, the biggest thing I used to get sometimes, oh, that guy, that, that stick. Oh, God, I don't want to ever hear a word sticks. That's not me. That's not me. I mean, a lot of guys I watch on TV now I try to develop stick. But you watch John Madden, myself, Bradshaw, and guys like Chris Berman. That's who we are, man. That's the kind of person. That's our personality. So when I do a game, that's me. I look at that red light and make believe I'm talking to my friends and I'm having a ball, having a blast. I mean, my preparation is uh, my plan is the work I've done and preparing on each player. You know, strengths, weaknesses, who's hot, who's not, who's coming into the game on maybe a three, four game cycle where he's playing exceptionally well. Uh, what team is hot? What offenses, defenses? That stuff is planned. But as far as reacting to things, that's me. That's just me on a moment. How do you explain your special connection with the fans? I really, you know, that's a great question. My wife asked that the other day, a bunch of these little kids coming up for pictures and autographs. And I get that almost every day. But, you know, I, I think they look at me as somebody you can approach. I think a lot of guys, I know there's some celebrities I'd like to approach. I look at their body language and I say, oh, I better not go there. And I think I make myself very approachable. I think also the fact they know I'm doing something I love from my heart. I'm not the most polished broadcaster. I'm not going to be the most smooth guy, but I'm going to talk from my heart. I'm going to talk with feeling and I'm going to be passionate about what I do. I mean, how could you not be passionate sitting behind a, 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 a table talking about a game of basketball and getting paid for it? I mean, I get amazed at that till this day. I think it's stealing money. If you had to go back and pick one game that defined Dick Vitale, what would it be? Well, you know, there was one game back years ago that was so special. It was Virginia with Ralph Sampson and Michael Jordan, North Carolina. Oh, man, it looked like Carolina was done. It looked like Virginia was going to walk out of there. Carmichael with a big, big W. was like number one. I don't remember exactly. Number one and number three. I think Virginia might have been number one. Carolina might have been number three. And at the last, like, minute heroics of, of Michael Jordan and me yelling basically, you know, Michael, the magnificent. He's the greatest player in the nation. And, and then I played around. I got to go out to Virginia to do a game. And the headline in the local paper was Diggy V says that Michael Jordan is the greatest. And Ralph Sampson was three times player of the year uh, in college basketball. So, you know, that game, that game really excited me. So many giants. We don't get those kind of players anymore because, you know, they're not around. They're gone after one year. I mean, those guys were there. Sampson was there four years, Michael three. And, and those early days, I mean, the Big East games, doing those games with Ewing against Chris Mullins and those guys and Syracuse with Coleman and company and Pearl Washington. Those were such special, special moments. I'll never forget Madison Square Garden with Allen Iverson going against Ray Allen and those games. I mean, to get paid games is like unbelievable. What is it about college basketball that still charges you up after all these years? The emotion, the passion, the change of 
of, in terms of in one minute when the momentum goes back and forth and the um, energy, the enthusiasm, you know, all the things that go on in the game and all the games on the sideline with the, you know, the cheering and the, the people that dress up, put their school colors on and come out, grandma, grandpa cheering for their team. It's just so special when you go in those arenas. And, you know, I've been blessed to go into some great, great arenas over the years. You know, I'm getting we're ready to wrap this up, but I want to tell you this. Before we wrap it up, the most important thing to me now in my life is raising money for kids battling cancer. Nothing, nothing now means more to me than that. And we're very proud with the Dick Vitale Gala thus far that we've raised $29.5 million for kids battling cancer, and it's not nearly enough. I just recently went to the hospital to visit a bunch of kids, bought them basketballs and books over in Iowa at the Children's Hospital. I was in Iowa to give a speech and to raise money for the V Foundation. And before we did that speech, I went to visit a bunch of kids. And I can still see Tim, this kid Tim. I can still see his little boy, Callan, whose mom and dad have found out he had got neuroblastoma. And breaks your heart, breaks your heart when you see these parents have to go through. In fact, as you and I are speaking right now, today, anybody listening, you think you got a problem today? You think you're dealing with a problem of maybe traveling or maybe the economy, maybe a stock didn't do what you thought or maybe job didn't do it? Well, let me tell you this. Today, 45 to 50 moms and dads are going home and they have a lifestyle change drastically because a doctor echoed four words, your child has cancer. I beg you people out there, I beg you. If you get my book and it's autographed, every dollar will go to the V Foundation for Kids Battling Cancer. You go to DickVitalOnline.com. I beg you to do that. DickVitalOnline.com. We must stop this. We must end this. There's too many kids today that are suffering. Absolutely. You are doing great work to fight kids' cancer and we salute you. You had your own health scare. About a decade ago, you had a problem with your throat, and it, it threatened your career. Yeah, 2008, I thought my career was over. And then a genius buddy, Dr. Zytels from out of Boston, gave me another 10 years where I've been working. And, and you know, he, he's just a genius at what he does. I mean, over the years, he's taken care of the likes of you know, Steven Tyler of Aerosmith. He's taken Lionel Richie, Adele. All these giants fly in because... You know, let's face it, I was I was really worried. There was a time there I could not go words without, you know, just struggling and struggling. That's all the time of abusing it all those years. And Stephen gave me an opportunity, did a great job for me, and got me another 10 years in the world of TV. How did you deal psychologically with the possibility that you might never speak again? It was tough to deal with, and the toughest to me, and I mentioned this too, Michael Kay just had surgery from the New York Yankees, voice for years, does a great job, Michael, he had a nodule removed, and it was done by Dr. Zytels, and I sent him a text message, I said, I'll tell you one thing, Michael, you're in the hands of a genius, and it will all work out fine. The toughest things to do is after you get the surgery, you, I had ulcerated lesions all over my throat, and they thought they were cancerous, so I had a lucky break, it was pre-cancer. I mean, I'm very, very lucky. And not only was going to change my career, I thought it was taking my life. But I got a lucky break, and I told Michael uh, in the text message to him, the toughest is going to be when after X number of weeks where you can't say a word, you're writing everything down on paper and notes, you walk into his office. My case was six weeks. Six weeks of not echoing a word. And now you walk in, and he says, talk to me. 
I'm telling you, I couldn't get a word out. I started, I like that. Talk to me, talk to me regular, we're pushing voice. I start crying. I honestly, truly, I start crying. It's very natural what you're feeling, Dick. Just let it go, talk. And finally, I said, said ABCs. And I did the ABCs and I talked a little more. And he said, just, you're going to be fine. Just keep talking. Just don't abuse it now for the next couple of weeks and you'll be fine. And when I went to do that first game back after my surgery, it was Carolina and Duke. Oh my God. When we pulled up to the campus and the kids were all outside waiting to go in the arena and they spotted me coming out and I started chatting Dickie V. I mean, it just, it emotionally just grabbed me like you couldn't believe. And to be back there for that moment and, be back at courtside was just an incredible, incredible privilege. I've always taken it to, to believe it's a tremendous privilege to be able to sit there and do a game. Thanks to Lane McGibney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American Achiever.